All right, good. We're talking about the atonement tonight. And um, what is the atonement? What do we mean when we say atonement? It's one of those big church words, churchy words. Anybody wants to take a shot at it? In the book, it's the work that Christ did in his life and death to, uh, to uh, gain for us salvation. That's right. It's the work Christ did for us to purchase our redemption, our salvation, uh, to earn it for us. <coughs> we can't do it for ourselves. There's a, um, I heard someone once upon a time describe it this way. Sin has separated us from God. Our intended purpose, our calling uh, is to be in, in uh, uh, fellowship with Him. Sin has broken that relationship. And atonement or atonement is the repair, is the restoration back to one or back to fellowship with God that He has intended for us. Now, Grudem um, goes about this in a um, particular way, and it's not uncommon, very similar to other systematic theologies. But he talks, first of all, about the cause for atonement, or the cause of atonement. The cause of atonement, the ultimate cause of the atonement is what? Gave you one. Sin. Sin. Three prongs. This is what sets it in motion. This is why it's necessary. Sin. <coughs> As I said, has broken the relationship with God. God's justice demands what? Sin be punished. That sin be punished. Uh, demands, I mean, he, wrath is required. Uh, for God to not deliver wrath to sin means that he would have to cease being God. He's no longer righteous or holy. That he would tolerate sin. So his justice must be satisfied, and it's because of his love for us that he goes about this. God's justice. If you look in um, Romans 3.25 verses 25 and 26 says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's justice, the payment or the bill owed for sin is death. That's, that's the judgment of God against sin. That's what he told Adam and Eve in the day that you disobey me, you'll die. That's what Satan disputed. Satan said, ah, you won't die. You know, that's just God trying to bully you, make you think that something's true when it's not. God, all through the Old Testament, you've got sins being carried out. How does God deal with those sins? Jesus doesn't die till 2,000 years ago. So how did God deal with sins all through the Old Testament? Sacrifices. Okay. So specifically, we'll say animal sacrifice. 
Now, so what we're saying is that those animal sacrifices appease the wrath of God when someone sinned, for instance, when, when Adam sinned uh, or Eve sinned, then an animal sacrifice would be offered. Or let's, let's move over. Let's say Moses or, or even later than that, David. You know, that when, when they committed a sin, they would go in and offer an animal sacrifice and that, that paid the bill for their sin. Is that right? Careful. That was a foreshadowing that Jesus came in for those sins. That's right. Uh, that's what he's referring to here. The animals, the animals could not atone for sin because they're animals. They're not human beings. Uh, a human life is required for someone if they sin against God. That, that's the rule. That's the payment, the bill. Death is required. Judgment is required. So what God did was he instituted the animal sacrificial system because he was teaching them, first of all, what the consequences of sin were. Secondly, he's showing them that um, there's one coming who's going to provide this, but it's not one of them. So this didn't satisfy, this didn't satisfy God's wrath. But what it says here is that God passed over. Romans 3, 25 says that, um, or 6, 26, to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So God said, yes, if you offer animal sacrifice, I'm going to pass over. In other words, I'm going to store it away. I'll store that wrath. I'll put it over here and knowing that it's going to be taken care of at some time in the future. And so that's what he's pointing to. God's justice. So you think about all the sins in, in the Old Testament, Adam's sin, Abraham's sin, David's sin. God stored the wrath via symbolic sacrifice of these animals. The penalty was really only paid and satisfied when Jesus completed his work of atonement. Now, so we've got uh, a picture of God's justice. John 3.16 gives us a picture of God's love. What does it say? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love. We cannot. You know, the scripture says in 1 John that God is love. And there is no love apart from God. That it's, a, it's the essence of who he is. You can't separate love out of God and him still be God. There is no love apart from God. His love compelled him to act in justice towards sin. And that's where we get, we get this atonement that God pulled off, keeping his holiness intact by judging sin and at the same time doing it mercifully and graciously to those of us who didn't deserve it. So it's a perfect tension. There's judgment and there's love. You know, I think I said something Sunday about this, about, you know, if they get out of balance, if you've got a God that's all love and no justice, you've got this total, you know, permissive God that tolerates everything, and so he can't be God. And if you've got the reverse, he's all judgment and no love, then you've got this ogre, you know, you've got this, this brute. But there's a perfect tension with God. His love is manifested in his justice, and his justice is displayed in his love. It's a paradox. You know, it's, a, it's a hard thing for us to get our minds around. But it doesn't mean it's not true. So the cause of atonement, our sin has broken the relationship with our Creator, and renders us incapable of, of fulfilling our purpose, which is fellowship with God, glorifying Him. And God has brought about this method of repairing and making it new again through the atonement of Christ. So now let's think about the necessity. <coughs> the necessity of atonement. Was atonement? 
necessary? Caution, trick question. Was it necessary for God to do it? Well, he gave you a hint. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> First Peter 2.24. Who can look that up for me? First Peter 2.24. Bible drill. Who's fastest? All right, read it, Russ. First Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's First Peter two twenty four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, somewhere there we looked it up not long ago First Peter chapter 2 which verse is it where he talks about the angels 2 Peter 2.24 yeah look that one up maybe that's it for if God did not spare angels when they sinned he sent them to hell putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment Read it again, Russ. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Is atonement necessary? No. We look at the evidence here of angels. If they sin, God doesn't offer them. Those who sin, God didn't offer them a chance, a reprieve. He didn't offer them grace. He doesn't offer them uh, atonement for their sins. Jesus even confirms that. If we look to um, Matthew, is that what I'm looking for? <laughs> well, y'all knew the last time. Uh, Matthew 26, 39, Jesus going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God did not have to save anyone, but he did choose to save some. And once he did, once he chose, once he determined he was going to save some, then atonement becomes necessary because it's the only path for redemption. Does that make sense? Atonement in and of itself is not necessary but once God determined he was going to save some of all who were lost, then it did become necessary. And Jesus demonstrates that here. He prays, if there's any other way for this to occur, let this cup pass from me. And we know that Jesus always prayed according to the will of the Father in a desire to honor the Father. He said, my food is to do the will of my Father. So he's praying that the cup might pass away, and yet... Jesus went to the cross and died, so we know this was necessary once God determined he was going to save some. The only way that could occur was through the atonement. <clears throat> A couple of terms that I think is important for us to um, throw in here, too. You, you hear them a lot, and... Uh, expiation. You know what that means? Payment. Sorry? Payment. Payment. Um, I would use the word remove. Um, if you expiate sin, you remove it. Okay? It's uh, very transactional. Lisa would like it. would like it as accountants. It's very transactional, very business-like. It's like a journal entry. Yeah, it's just, it is. That's all it is. There's a team. And, and a lot of people like to focus on this, uh, even in evangelical circles. They like to move away from penal substitution. They, they want to get away from, from the sacrificial aspect of Christ's work. 
um, because they want to move it more to just a transactional thing. And so you'll hear people describe another word, propitiation, they want to define it or replace it with expiation and make it just more objective transaction, okay? Well, propitiation is what? Payment for sin? It is, but it's a little bit more specific. It, it is a um, satisfy, appease, uh, <coughs> and it's personal. And so there's a, there's a marked difference between the two. When the scripture says, and I think it was right there in Romans, we, we saw it. It's also in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Um, I'm to start with verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. I think 2 Corinthians also uses the word. Getting the right book. Well, in the sense that John 3.16 says that he loved the whole world, that whoever believes. Um, He's going through and reconciled to himself, reconciliation to Christ Jesus, reconciling trespasses. Message reconciled, therefore we are ambassadors. No, it doesn't use the word. But propitiation means to satisfy perfectly the wrath of God. Okay? So, um, we said that God stored all the wrath for sin for all time. From, from Adam and Eve's sin all the way through. Yes, he allowed them to function without the burden of guilt for their sin. But sin was not, was not paid for at that point. It was paid forward, you know, so to speak. Or maybe paid backwards is a better word. It was going to be paid backwards from Christ's death. Christ is the only sufficient sacrifice for sin. If animals could satisfy, there'd been no need for Christ to ever be sacrificed, right? So God is storing all his wrath towards sin over here, passing over, because sins, the judgment for sin is death. You know, God doesn't play around with that. We know he did that with Achan. We know he did that with Ananias and Sapphira. He gives us illustrations of instantaneous judgment in certain cases. But he chose in his forbearance and his patience to pass over and to store all the wrath. And so let's think of it as water. We've got water falling out of the sky here all week. We can think of water. Think about the oceans. You think about all the water that runs under the earth and, um, you know, in the surface of the earth and rivers and things that are underground. Water. We can't imagine just how much water is on this planet. Three quarters of the water of the earth is water, right? So there's a lot of water. Think of sin kind of in those kind of terms. I mean, even then, we could probably calculate, somebody who's smart enough could calculate how much water there is and put a fixed amount on it, couldn't they? You know, on the earth and, and get pretty close. But with the sins of mankind, we can't even do that, can we? They're just accumulating. I mean, just think about it. As populations exploding and generations come and go, God's passing over the sin. He's, he's storing up this wrath. And it's like pouring water into this reservoir. And it's just building up and building up and building up. Okay? And it's owed, we saw an illustration of it in the flood with Noah when God looked and said that everything had become so corrupt that he wouldn't tolerate it anymore and he poured out judgment. Okay? So we saw a glimpse of it then. But 
He's storing this and storing this, looking for the day of judgment. But what happens in the meantime? Christ comes. Christ goes to the cross. Perfect, holy, righteous, eternal, able to go and satisfy the wrath of God. So if we think of it in liquid terms as being stored up, this big reservoir, Christ literally drank all the wrath of God and exhausted it. That's propitiation. It's personal between us and God. We owe God this. And Jesus went in our place and he took it and satisfied God's judgment for all the sin for all time. Not only in the past, but also in the future. For every sin that will ever be committed. He satisfied God's wrath. There's no longer any wrath towards sin. Because Christ has exhausted it. Does that help? Many people kind of camp out on these things because they really want to discount the penal substitution that goes with the atonement. They, they don't want to think of uh, Jesus having to die for our sin. They want to think of us just making a, a decision to follow Christ and that we're transformed from that moment on. They don't want to think about this personal transaction where God is offended by sin and a life, Jesus' life, when he shed his blood, life is in the blood. You know, you pour the blood out of the body, it doesn't live, right? That's where the life is. So, when you see the shedding of blood, it's literally the pouring out of a life, a human life, that of Christ, in place of those of us who deserved it. It should have been us, but it was him, and he exhausted the judgment of God by doing that. But a lot of people don't want to think of it that way. They're embarrassed by, uh, by those things. I referenced uh, Marcionism on Sunday, and... Uh, and there's a lot of it today. People, people want the, the one illustration I mentioned to you about disconnecting from the Old Testament. The, the whole reason is to be politically correct in Christianity. We believe that we have to convince everybody that we're okay. We're not ancient. We're not antiquated in our beliefs. And, and we're doing ourselves and the gospel a disservice when we do that. Not to mention offending God. The, um, Leon Morris has a book do with it call the atonement it's significance and meaning if you're looking for something to read it's uh, it gives a little bit of technical expertise on some of the terms that that are used in association with atonement like sacrifice the day of atonement Passover uh, reconciliation propitiation justification etc um, but it's not a technical read so you could appreciate reading it um, you know, it's something that anybody can embrace. So it's not a heavy-duty read. You might learn some things from it, but I just want to share a couple of things that he said here in, uh, on page 151 about propitiation. He says, <clears throat> the two concepts, propitiation and expiation, are really very different. Propitiation means the turning away of anger. Expiation is rather the making amends for a wrong. Uh, propitiation is a personal word. One propitiates a person. Expiation is an impersonal word. One expiates a sin or a crime. Page uh, 153. He says, It is this wrath that is called into question when people deny the Bible speaks of propitiation. So it is important to notice that the Bible makes it very clear that this wrath is a reality and that it says a great deal about it. It's not something that we can avoid. People like to play language games with Scripture. They go in and say, well, that word really means this. And I mean, we're talking about theologians and Bible scholars will do this because they're trying to support their own belief system that is more gentler when it comes to the shedding of blood as uh, part of the atonement. Uh, let's see, he's talking about C.H. Dodd, who um, was one of those that wanted to disconnect from, from Old Testament. 
Uh, he says here in the Bible, the wrath of God is intensely personal. The prophets did not think of an absentee God benevolently allowing the universe to go on its way with all kinds of impersonal mechanisms in operation. They emphasized the sovereignty of God. They saw him as active in the affairs of men. Specifically, they were sure that the punishment of sin was due to be paid to God himself. You know, you, you hear sometimes, and uh, I, think, uh, I think I read this in Rudum's book where he mentions some of the uh, theories about atonement that are not correct, and one of them is that the atonement was to be paid to Satan. That's one theory, uh, but, but that's not true. God's the one that's offended by sin. God's the one that the debt uh, is owed. And so the payment has to be to him, and there's nothing that we can do to ever pay that in and of ourselves. The uh, nature of the atonement. The nature of the atonement. The primary emphasis and the primary influence of Christ's work of redemption is not on us, but on God the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father in our place. Remember, when God came to Abraham, what did he promise Abraham? Yeah, I'm going to make you a great people. God said, I'm going to make you a great people. And, and we kind of get hung up a lot on the physical side of that promise that God made. You know, land, you know, called Israel and the geopolitical aspect of it, all those, those kind of things. And we miss out on really the spiritual component. What God was doing was saying, Abraham, I've chosen you and your descendants. And it's through your line that I'm going to bring the Redeemer who's going to provide atonement. For the sins of many. All the world, all the Gentiles, including your family and the Gentiles, will be blessed by what goes on here. That's the primary thing we need to take away from that. And so he made a covenant with Abraham. Remember? And when you made a covenant, usually they would take they'd take a, a you know a, a cow or a livestock and they would split it in half and lay it out, and the two parties going into covenant together would walk between the two parts of the animal. And by doing that, what they were doing was symbolically saying, if, if I break this covenant, may this be done to me. So it was an oath they were taking. But when he uh, did this covenant with Abraham, Abraham didn't walk between. It was only God who passed between. So God was saying, the contract is on me. There are responsibilities. You know, you'll be my people, you'll act like, you, you know, and I'll be your God. That kind of thing. And we know the, the history with Israel and how they continually violated that, how they continually uh, spurned uh, God's plans and, and obedience to God. They went about their own business. But that covenant is broken. And so God comes back and he, he doubles down with, uh, after Noah, I mean, uh, after uh, Moses with the, uh, the law that he gives them out in the wilderness at Sinai. This law is it tells them specifically what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it in order for us to walk together in covenant. And I mean, Moses doesn't even get down off the mountain with the covenant, with the law, until they've broken it again, right? And so this goes on, on and on and on, and this leads to God promising that, look, what I've demonstrated here is that you're not capable. You're not capable of keeping the covenant that I've made with you. You're not capable of fulfilling the responsibilities that I've given to you, even though I'm doing all the heavy lifting here. And so I'm going to write a new covenant, and this will be on your hearts. We read this on Sunday. This will be in you, and this is going to be done through the Redeemer, through atonement. But not only did Christ go to the cross to expiate our sin, to propitiate what we owed to God, but before he got to the cross... He also obeyed God and fulfilled the covenant that we can't fulfill. That Israel proved you couldn't fulfill. We prove every day we can't fulfill it. But Jesus did. The scripture says he always did what his father asked him to do. He perfectly fulfilled. So when Jesus went to the cross, not only did he 
take our place and take the wrath of God, but he also completed for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, the positive side of the relationship with God. So that when, when we put our faith and trust in him, there's a great exchange that takes place. My sin, Christ takes and pays for his righteousness that he did for 30 some odd years while walking this earth, always perfectly fulfilling the commandments of God becomes mine, as if I did it. That's the great exchange. That's the positive side of this. This is the nature of the atonement. Christ's obedience, active obedience, is applied to us when we put our faith and trust in Him. We have to have this righteousness, this holiness, to, to enter into the presence of God. It's not enough just to have our sins removed. Adam and Eve had their sin removed, or didn't have any sin to start with, right? They were, they were, kind of, they were innocent. But they needed to be righteous. Hence, the opportunity to obey God, and they went by the wayside. We not only need to be free of sin, but we need to have the active presence of righteousness. And so Jesus provides that for us. If his, if his sacrifice on the cross and his life was only, if the atonement is only about our sin and having it removed, then that's great. Our sin is dealt with, but we have no hope of be, uh, finishing, uh, going through eternity in the presence of God in a place called heaven. Because we need to be righteous. So he's completed that demand, that covenant side for us, and it becomes ours. It's imputed to us just like our sin is transferred to him and paid for when he dies on the cross. So this is what we would call his active obedience. Then there's the, uh, the other side where his passive obedience, where Christ's suffering and death um, we know from his life, Matthew 4, we see his temptation uh, that was incredibly demanding, time of suffering. John 11, we see where Jesus wept. Um, even though, you know, it's, it's really odd when you think about it that, John, that he stood there outside the tomb where he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead and wept. Um, and I don't know that there's any clear-cut answer as to why, given the situation. We know that when he entered started to enter Jerusalem on uh, Palm Sunday, that, that he looked over the city of Jerusalem and that he wept for the city uh, because of the hardness of their heart and their rebellion. So he constantly was dealing with suffering, uh, even in his life before the cross. Uh, he was doubted, he was derided, he was accused, he was persecuted continually. So his life was not one of you know, freedom from suffering or difficulty or adversity. He was constantly in the crosshairs of, uh, of uh, all kinds of things. So if you think you've had bad days, <clears throat> he's had worse. And he did so without sin, without ever sinning. When you come to the cross, we know about, well, you've heard people uh, talk about, kind of expound upon the physical pain of death uh, by crucifixion. Uh, it's a very uh, incredible process, you know, and it's, it's a slow suffocation of a man uh, where he suffocates himself, really. They hang him on a cross. When they drop the cross into the, into the ground uh, with him being hung on that cross, every joint in his body, when it hit the bottom of that ground, would have been separated. You know, you think about having a separated shoulder or you know, hyperextended knees or those things. Well, every joint in his body would have been separated by the impact of that cross hitting solid ground with him stretched out in that position. And, and after having been beaten and, and abused the way he had been and the loss of blood and fluids, dehydration would have been a part of it. So hanging there on that cross, and you know, not to mention the pain of having nails in your wrists and, and in your feet, uh, and, and sagging there on the cross, then the body cavity is filling up with fluids and, and, you know, and it's compressed because of the posture that he's in. The only way he could get a breath would be to push up on that nail and, and to take a breath. And so that's, 
how he constantly would continue to stretch out his life in all of its misery. But the fight for life is such that you couldn't just stay there, could you? As long as you could push up, you're going to do it. And so sometimes a man might hang on the cross for a couple of days before he finally got so fatigued that he could no longer push up and he slowly would just suffocate. So it was an incredibly painful, uh, inhumane way for someone to die. And it was reserved for the worst of, the worst of criminals. Uh, Roman citizens, it was forbidden for them to be crucified by cross because it was so hideous. Um, the psychological pain of bearing sin, uh, Grudem mentions. We understand a little bit of the misery when we, when we sin, uh, the guilt that we deal with and the remorse that we have. We wish we could change it and do it, especially when we see the consequences maybe that it causes. Um, Christ took, he took the guilt of sin, of all sin. And imagine the relationship with God the Father and knowing, you know, more intimately than you and I can appreciate the weight of that, that guilt. He, uh, <coughs> he encountered abandonment. Uh, his disciples abandoned him, you know, when, uh, I mean, when he went into that Garden of Gethsemane to pray and he told them to stay there, he gives us a glimpse into the fact that nobody could go any further. This was something he had to do and only he could do alone. Uh, but then we see when, when the, uh, uh, the abuse began with the arrest that all of them fled away from him. They ran from him, uh, abandoned him. And then even on the cross, uh, we hear him say to the Father, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he was there all alone. He did it all by himself, bearing the wrath of God, all the wrath of all sin of all time, not forgotten, not winked at, not casually swept under the rug, but exhausted in penalty. Jesus drank it all, and that's when he said, it is finished. Um... Grudem mentions some different terms that describe various aspects of the atonement in the New, T in the New Testament. He gives four terms particularly that show how Christ's death uh, met four needs we have as sinners. One was sacrifice. In Hebrews 9.26 says, uh, to pay the penalty of death that we deserve because of our sins, Christ died as a sacrifice for us. He has appeared for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The other was propitiation that we've talked about, 1 John 4.10. Uh, to remove from us the wrath of God we deserve, Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19. To overcome our separation from God, we needed someone to provide reconciliation and thereby bring us back into fellowship with God. Paul says that through Christ, uh, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word, uh, the world to himself. And then redemption is uh, the fourth word. Because we as sinners are in bondage to sin and to Satan, we need someone to provide redemption and thereby redeem us out of that bondage. So when we speak of redemption, the idea of a ransom automatically comes into view. Now, if you have any questions about any of that up to that point, knowing that there's no way we can exhaust the study. You can, there are people who invested their whole lives studying and uh, examining the atonement and grappling with all the mystery that's involved there. In talking about Jesus' suffering, would it be accurate? Would it be accurate to say that he's somehow experienced an eternity of separation from God? God? Well, I think um, the Bible doesn't say that, right. uh, and you know, and Grudem makes the point, um, either in his writing or in one of his lectures, that it's not fair for us to even say that Jesus suffered more intensely than any human ever has, because the Bible doesn't tell us that either. Uh, but we do know that. When you're talking about dealing with the wrath of God, let's just say that 
it's beyond anything we can imagine. Uh, but we do know that every one of the elect, all of the elect, all the people that God has set his love upon and determined that would be a part of his adopted family, that Christ paid their full debt for their sin um, part while of, he was on the cross. Part of which was eternal separation from God. That's right. Uh, he exhausted it. Uh, and if we haven't had that forgiveness, then we have to die and we, have, we can never pay that debt. We can never exhaust it ourselves. Only he could. That was one of the things we talked about last week in the first one. <coughs> Only God, only Jesus as deity could could bear the full penalty. The, the, That's right. The infinite penalty that was received. Well, yeah. I mean, if he's just a man, if he's just a man, then and he died on a cross and he's perfect without sin, he still can only redeem one life. He can only be a substitute for one. But as God, you know, he had to be man in order to die, but he had to be God in order for all the elect sin to be taken care of in his death. Anything else? All right, I just want to touch on uh, a couple of other things here, kind of wrapping this up. He offers you four alternate views of atonement that, that you may hear uh, about or run across at some time or other. The other one we said was uh, one of them was ransom to Satan theory. Uh, Origen uh, began that theory uh, back in uh, the uh, 185 to 254 uh, A.D. was when he lived. Uh, there's no scriptural support for it. Uh, it ignores scripture that identifies uh, Christ's death as a propitiation to God. I mean, when you and most of you have read through the scriptures, you've been in church a long time, you know this to be true that there's no way that you can um, make a case on any level that the atonement was designed to pay a ransom to Satan to free us from sin. Anybody have a problem with that? With that adamant statement? <laughs> okay. uh, the other, uh, one of the other theories was the moral influence theory. And basically it says, Christ's death merely demonstrated God's love by identifying with human suffering even to the point of death. So again, you know, qualifying this, uh, trying to move penal substitution off the table. That this is not, you know, here's what the liberal community in religious circles wants to do. They, they want to make Christianity more palatable. You know, they believe that if we focus on social issues, you know, doing good, you know, moral issues, trying to be good people, that, that that's, that's what our calling is. They want to move away from what they would call the slaughterhouse religion where you've got this, this messy, ugly, hideous uh, butchery of sin and you'll hear it described as, you know, God has committed the greatest act of child abuse ever if Jesus was his son and, and God you know, uh, crucified him on the cross, then, you know, that's the way they, they lump this together. Uh, they can't handle the, the brutality of it, the, the violence of it, nor can they handle the ownership of the sin and being the cause of it. But we know that where there's pushback like that coming from the world, that that's a tip-off, a red flag for us, that we need to be very careful, right, to stand our ground and understand that we can't compromise on what Scripture tells us. We can't go back in, as I said Sunday, and edit the Scripture, even the Old Testament. You know, it's all there. The New Testament stands on the shoulders of the Old Testament. I, I think it was Adrian Rogers used to say, uh, the New Testament is, in the Old Testament is concealed, and the Old Testament in the New Testament is revealed. And, you know, they go hand in hand. The covenants in the Old Testament lend themselves to the coming of the new covenant through Christ Jesus. What the old covenants in the Old Testament could not do because they depended upon man trying to satisfy them, Jesus has perfectly completed in the New Testament. And in Him, we get the benefit, we receive the benefit of those covenants as if we had 
completed them ourselves. We had satisfied them ourselves. So moral influence theory uh, doesn't work. Uh, Peter Abelard uh, is, uh, was kind of the key advocate for that. The example theory, uh, no payment for sin required. Christ's death provides an example of how to trust and obey God even in the most adverse circumstances. I mean, is that just not ridiculous? I mean, why would God go to that length? You know, when we think about what crucifixion really was and the impact that it had, why would, I mean, why would you need to go that far as an example of how to trust God? You know, but again, no, no, um, there's no truth in this. The governmental theory, the one I have the probably the least trouble or the most trouble understanding. No direct payment required. God's laws must be obeyed. Christ's death shows a penalty must be paid. It's a little bit, it's even a little bit contradictory of itself. Um, but basically saying that you know it's just a demonstration that when you break the laws of God, then you know we need to. You have to do penance, in other words. You know, there, there needs to be a payment made for it. But it's not penal substitution, not to that level, not to that degree. Now, one more interesting question that he poses at the end of his chapter that I would be remiss if we didn't throw it out there. Did Jesus descend into hell? I mean, you hear that, right? I mean, that goes around sometimes that when Jesus died... And while he was supposedly in the tomb, that he descended into hell and, you know, preached to the to the, the prisoners, the captives in, in prison. Um, now, somebody asks you that question, how are you going to respond? It didn't happen, though. What's that? It did not happen. It did not happen. Why did it not happen? How, do you, how can you be so adamant, Steve? How can you be so narrow-minded? <laughs> That's usually the way they ask me. Well, there was no reason for him to go down to, to hell or to pay any type of a, or use that as any type of a payment. He, um, Why? Oh, right. Um, <laughs> I just think it through. It's not hard. Huh? Their fate had been sealed. Yeah, but, but even more obvious. What's he just done? He just said it. It's finished. He just finished yeah, it. That's true. It's all done. He so told, told the thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise. That, that's right too. Yeah, I mean, these are not complicated. I mean, when the question's asked, it's real easy for us to. Yeah, when when we when we first hear the question, it's a little bit intimidating. You know, my mind always goes to. I mean, he mentioned the Apostles' Creed that it's in the Apostles' Creed, but it's not in the original uh, versions of the Apostles' Creed. It was added at some point in time which is always a problem. But uh, when people come along and decide to improve on something, you know, they've they got to add some things here, some qualifiers. Um, but, you know, we always go to Peter, where Peter talks about um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the captives in prison. But when you read that, it doesn't say anything about hell or... You got it, Russ? I see you rushing pages. I'm not going to tell anybody where, where to look anymore. <laughs> I know it's in Peter. It's in Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 2. Is it or chapter 1? Chapter 2, 1. I was going to choose, so I was wrong there. Isn't the logic kind of Jesus died, then he hanged the land of the dead, which is showing that he's got it. Um, but there's no reason for him to go to hell. I agree. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and so, you know, Jesus... I'm just saying using that logic. That's right. I mean, you're right. What the logic was, I mean, it's been purported is that you know, that was paradise, you know, where you know, Lazarus and the rich man, they went to hell. They went to right. that location. And he's, and he's, I guess what they're saying is that he went down there to release them now that they had died. Now they were yeah, I mean, the, the idea comes that, well, until Jesus died, all these people in the Old Testament didn't know the gospel. 
And so they're in prison. You know, they're locked away down there waiting for judgment. And he went to preach the gospel to them to give them their opportunity to repent. Yeah, that's right. chance. Um, but the bottom line is the gospel has been being preached since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Proto-Evangelium there in uh, uh, verse 15 of chapter 3 where he says, The woman's seed, you know, will crush your head. You will bruise him on the heel. That begins the gospel, which runs all through the Old Testament. And the people of the Old Testament before Christ, as we said about the animal sacrifices, they believed on Christ. They believed on Messiah. They believed on the Lamb of God in anticipation. We get to look back historically and know that it happened, but we believe on what he did because you know, we, we look back in faith. They looked forward in the same faith to what God was going to do. Every time they sacrificed an animal, they didn't believe that the animal was, I mean, there were some probably that were ritualistic and said, you know, well, this, I'm doing this to earn God's favor. But there were many of them that had, there were people of faith that said, I'm doing this because God is going to provide this perfect redeemer that's going to cover our sin sometime in the future. And so they were believing forward to what we believe backward and trusting in. So they're saved. When Christ died, the fact that he told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, tells us all we need to know yep. about where he was while he was in the tomb. He followed the same path that all of us follow when we die as believers in Christ. That when death comes, the spirit leaves the body. The body is buried. The spirit enters the presence of God. What, what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And until the day comes, Jesus' day of resurrection, he is the first fruits of all of us who will be raised. So on the third day, his spirit came back, entered into his incorruptible body, and he resurrected from the dead. In that is a picture of the hope that all of us have, that someday when Christ returns, we're going to follow the same prescription. We're going to have a new body, an incorruptible body, and our spirit will be reunited as we resurrect and join in. Any more questions or comments? Snarky remarks? Mm -hmm.